This is episode four of the Performance Dietitian Podcast. I'm Susan Lopez, and today I have with me Josh New. So Josh is a sports dietitian currently working as the director of sports nutrition at Menlo College Athletics in Atherton, California. He is also the assistant strength and conditioning coach there, and also the assistant sports nutrition director with the San Jose Earthquakes, the major league soccer team out in California. So welcome to the show, Josh. Thank you, Susan, for having me. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad that you're able to make time to visit with us. Um, yeah, absolutely. So why don't we, real quick, let's just talk a little bit about you. Uh, walk us through your bio, kind of tell us, you know, where you went to school, where you did your internship, and walk us through kind of your career up till right now. Yeah, absolutely. So I kind of feel like everything started whenever I was in high school. Uh, me being an athlete and always being an athlete throughout high school and college, the exercise side of things was really important to me. And I knew that performance, especially for me as a, a football player at the time, was uh, really crucial and key based on you know how I, I how I performed in the weight room and my strength conditioning and that sort of thing. And so I uh, ended up going into playing football at the University of Oklahoma. And while I was there, I got a degree in health and exercise science and as I was going through that, I quickly started to realize that nutrition was a really big component into how successful I was on the field and in the weight room also. And I also saw it from the own health of my own family members and just what they were doing. And I quickly realized um, also because I, I did a little bit of personal training as well in, in undergrad that everything that I was doing was just uh, conflicting with what people were eating outside of that. And I realized nutrition was the bigger component. And so I decided to uh, pursue a master's degree in nutrition and uh, did that. I also did a the University of Oklahoma is one of the, the few schools in the nation that offers a master of dietetics. So I ended up doing that. Um, did a dual degree in nutritional sciences as well in case I wanted to go on to do PhD or teaching. Um, after I finished with that, I applied for the dietetic internship at the University of Houston. Uh, luckily got in with the DI match system and then went down there, um, finished my DI rotations through the Texas Medical Center um, there in Houston. And after I finished up with that, um, started working at Lifetime Fitness there, which was a, uh, a major health club there in Houston. Worked there for a few years. After that, uh, my wife and I ended up moving out to the West Coast, which is where we are now. Uh, and I'm out here working for Menlo College and, as you said, the, the San Jose Earthquakes as well. Congratulations, because I know that the women's wrestling team there at Menlo uh, captured their first national championship title. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it was uh, really big for the school. It's a very, very small school. There's only about 900 students total, and about 340 of those are, are student athletes. And uh, the, the school has never won a championship in anything. So um, they won it both in the NAIA, which is separate from NCAA. Uh, they won it for NAIA across uh, the nation, and they also won the WCWA, uh, which is a little bit more competitive because it includes some NCAA D2 and D3 schools. Uh, and many of those girls are, are extremely talented. Some of those are trying out for uh, a couple of them made the Olympic trials, and a couple of them were also competing in the world trials as well. Yeah, so I'm taking a look at the numbers here, and it looks like uh, captured nine All-Americans and three national champs. So that's really phenomenal. Yeah, they did. A, they were amazing this season. They did very, very well. 
And you're the strength and conditioning coach specifically for the women's wrestling team. Is that right? Yeah. So I run uh, all of their programming. So I put together all of their workouts for them, take them through all of the workouts, uh, work pretty tightly with the, the head coach and just the coaching staff in general for women's wrestling. Uh, and I, I will say that it is a, a very disciplined sport. There's uh, a lot of work that goes into it on their end. I mean, they're practicing as, as anyone can imagine for hours on hours a week. So, um, yeah, it's been really good. Talk a little bit about what your season uh, with them had been like and maybe walk us through not just the nutrition, but also the strength and conditioning part. Uh, one of the things that I really like is how I'm seeing a lot of dietitians, specifically sports dietitians, really take on additional certifications like the strength and conditioning certification to really enhance their practice. Yeah, definitely. So, I, you know, going through the whole exercise side of things, it, it was always something I wanted to do was you know, combine the exercise science and the nutrition realm, so to speak. And I ended up getting my CSCS pretty late. I just got it about a year ago. Uh, and I started up strength coaching with women's wrestling not long after that. And I will say that it has helped tremendously because now I can program the workouts, but it also gives me a lot more face time in front of them so that I can speak more on nutrition. I can answer more questions because uh, especially with weight class athletes, any, any, um, any Olympic sports or uh, combat sports is what I'm looking for, where you've got weight classes, they're always going to be cutting weight. And it's uh, very crucial that they know what they're doing because a lot of the information that they get is typically from their coaches and their coaches get their nutrition information from their coaches and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of misinformation uh, in wrestling and, and any other combat sports where we have weight classes. So me being in front of them has helped out a lot because uh, I've gone through different weight loss tactics with them as far as cutting weight uh, right before competitions and making sure that they're making weigh-in weights um, and things that they need to be doing as far as, you know, weight of food that's sitting inside their stomach, how to cut water properly. Because uh, a lot of these girls were not doing it correctly. Again, it's just stuff that's passed down from generation to generation. Um, dehydrating themselves way too early on in the week and just barely struggling to make it through the week and just doing these dangerous cuts. Um, and having the exercise science side of things too, I can now say, okay, we're doing these specific workouts. These are the nutrition strategies you need to be doing um, to make sure that we're getting everything that you need to out of the weight room and on the mats as well. Because especially if you're trying to cut too early, they're not really going to be present for their practices. They're not going to be 100% um, focused on what they need to be doing and trying to get better um each and every day. So the nutrition was a huge part of that. Um, having this little nutrition talks with them afterwards about you know what they need to be eating before and after workouts, especially since we work out um, at 6 and 8, 6 a.m. very early in the morning. So I think it's definitely helped quite a bit. That kind of sounds like it might be a difficult balance sometimes, trying to help ensure that they're making weight for competition, but also making sure that we're keeping them healthy. How do you strike that balance between helping them make weight without taking them down a path of excessive uh, restriction or, you know, possibly even making sure that they steer clear of any possible um, disordered eating type patterns. Yeah, I think that's really difficult because for college students in general, it's, it's pretty common to see some sort of disordered eating pattern just to begin with. But now you throw in, they've got to make a certain weight every single week. It, it, makes it, it almost like amplifies the problem. Uh, so I think a lot of the progress has to be made in the off season. And it was kind of tough for me because I showed up 
uh, right before their season started. So I didn't have a lot of time to work with them in the off season, but truthfully, a lot of their, their weight cuts and everything that they're doing needs to be done in the off season. They need to get themselves in the right position before they even start the season. Because if not, now you're trying to all of a sudden do more training during the season and you're trying to get your body down to an appropriate weight. You can then cut weight from, uh, and one of the things that I've talked with them about for is, is, specifically what weight they can be at maximum in order to safely cut weight for the competition and not take away from their own performance. Uh, but again, I think a lot of that happens in the off season and, and meeting with athletes one-on-one -on -one and trying to figure out you know, what's going on. I will say too, that uh, there are some people who do have eating disorders, uh, even weight class athletes as well, even with women's wrestling. And those, uh, I, I typically work with the psychologist that's on campus. We're lucky enough to have one. Um, so a lot of times I, I usually just refer over to them and then work in coordination with them as far as the nutrition plan goes for uh, the girls that I'm working with specifically, but for anybody else that, that is struggling with that as well. But I will say that it is definitely a lot tougher. Uh, research does show too that there is a, a higher incidence of disordered eating, but a lot of that tends to subside or go away almost entirely once the uh, athlete has finished the sport and is not having to cut weight or get to a certain weight for any specific competition reasons. So it's good that you have a sports psychologist that you can work with. So you talked about, you know, uh, a lot of the work has to be done in the off season. So they are not having to work them so hard um, during the competition season. So now we're getting into periodization of nutrition. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned combat sports. You know, we hear a lot about periodization of nutrition for uh, endurance athletes, um, but we don't hear a lot of about how to periodize nutrition for combat athletes. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that and what that might look like um, during certain macro cycles? So I think with, with the athletes that I'm working with, it's probably a little bit more difficult. So it being an NAI school, I don't get the athletes year round. Uh, they're usually gone pretty much the entire summer. We don't pay for them to be on campus during the summer. So if they're able to stay and they live nearby, they can, and it works even better. The, the more, even more complicated thing is that the women's wrestling season, at least last season was almost nine months long. I think it was eight and a half months total. So you're talking about almost the entire time that I'm with them is pretty much just during the season. So it makes it a little bit more difficult for sure. Um, but again, I think for the collegiate athletes, it's more so just making sure that they've got the, the framework that they need uh, in order to be successful with nutrition in the off season. So are they covering the basics? Are they optimizing their protein intake throughout the day? Uh, are they actually making the right food choices? Some of them I have to worry about, do they actually have access to the right foods? Uh, do they have access to those foods on a regular basis? I think covering those is going to be the most important thing in the off season. And once they've got those behaviors down, it's a lot easier to um, manipulate whatever we need to during the season, or at least help an athlete with more specifics. Like, Hey, you need to be eating more carbs at lunch and dinner, right around training times. Um, you're someone who needs to be eating less carbs, higher fats, those sorts of things. Uh, it's a lot easier to implement those once you've got the, the framework down. And then when you talk about water cutting, I want to kind of revisit that for a second. What are some techniques that you've maybe used with your athletes to help them safely cut water? Uh, so we've done several different things. Uh, so with the weight cut, when it, especially when it comes to water, typically what I see most of the athletes doing is they start cutting waters on the Monday before a Saturday weigh-in, uh, which is absolutely something you should not do because we all know that there's hormones in our body that regulate water. Uh, 
intake and output. So if they're cutting water early on in the week and they're still working hard and sweating, essentially their body is just now retaining even more water. So one of the things that I talk to them about is uh, doing ample amounts of water and electrolytes early on in the week. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, they're actually increasing their water take intake above what they would normally do. So we're talking Saturday, Sunday, uh, Monday, and then on Friday, they're not, there's, they're starting their cut roughly 24 to 36 hours out from the weigh-in. So if there's someone who has a lot of weight to lose, they're going to start a little bit earlier. If they're not, they can start a little bit later. Uh, but we know that it's going to help them drop more water weight faster if they're hydrated completely throughout the week rather than coming in dehydrated and then trying to drop uh, that last little bit for the next 24 hours. And one of the examples I, I usually give the athletes, especially with weight class athletes, they're weighing in all the time before and after practices. They know exactly what their walk around weight is. Um, they know exactly what they weigh in before and after and how much they lose on average. So asking them how much weight do you typically lose on a Monday, Tuesday practice versus how much do you normally lose on a Thursday, Friday practice, especially on a Friday when you're trying to sweat more. It's inevitably less water weight is dropped or weight in general on a Friday because they're more dehydrated. Their body's holding on to more water. Um, the other tactic that I've talked with them a lot about as well is the types of foods that they're eating leading into the weigh-in, specifically about 24 hours out. Because if they eat something that's, that we would consider healthy in terms of you know brown rice with broccoli, uh, something that's, that's high fiber, they're going to retain uh, more water and more weight inside of their gut. And that's not something that they can just hop onto a treadmill and sweat out essentially before they go into to weigh in. So eating things that are uh, lower in carbs, because now we can shed water weight from that, but still keep their calories where it needs to be by eating higher fat foods and lower in fiber will help them drop a little bit of weight um, faster going into their weigh-in on a Saturday morning. And is that method, do you use that method specifically just for maybe the women's teams? What about some of the men's teams that you work with um, on their nutrition as well? Do you, um, because we know there is a lot of differences between men and women in terms of um, how they use certain substrates for energy, um, you know, their hormones, things like that. So do you use some of the same techniques maybe for men if they're trying to cut weight? Weight cutting strategies, yeah, absolutely. So if they're, we only have two uh, weight class sports. Uh, we've got two weight class sports, excuse me, I, I can't say just two. We have a club team that's Olympic weightlifting as well. Uh, most of them are right around their, their weights for weigh-ins for the most part, so we don't have to worry about that. Uh, they're certainly not doing drastic cuts, and it's, it's you know far fewer times a year compared to wrestling sports. Uh, but for all the men's wrestling athletes, yeah, we, I've discussed all of this with them as well. I don't get as much face time with them just because I'm not coaching them in the weight room. Uh, but yeah, we go through the same weight cutting tactics for both of them. And then with the women's wrestling team, what are your strategies for rehydrating in between weigh-in and competition time? Uh, that's a great question because um, that is very, very difficult, which is part of the reason you don't want to be too far off of your target weight to begin with. Because if you're someone who's going to be, uh, I would never suggest doing more, of a 5, more than a 5% weight cut. But let's say that you are right at 5% and you are a lighter weight class, which means um, for our sake, you're going to be wrestling earlier. You probably only have about an hour to an hour and a half between the time that you weigh in to the time that you're competing on the mat. It's really not a lot of time to rehydrate. So ideally, if we can get them closer to their target weight, they have to lose less. That means they don't have to replenish less when they step off the scale uh, would be best. But Typically, what I talk to them about is um, just quick and fast, easy digesting carb sources. We're talking white bread, jelly, honey, those sorts of things that they can eat as soon as they get off the scale. 
Um, hydration sake is typically just Gatorades and those sorts of things because they're typically um, not only dehydrated, but they haven't been eating. That's a, a, a big issue as well as sometimes girls will just, or and guys too, will just stop eating altogether in hopes of making the weight a little bit easier. Um, so it's just trying to replenish things as, as quickly as possible. But we know that electrolytes take several hours to fully get inside the body. So again, we don't want them to be uh, fully dehydrated to the point where they're having trouble stepping on the scale before they go um, compete on the mat. For the earthquakes, we use Drip Drop, and then they're also sponsored by Advocare. Um, we have a, their rehydration stick. Uh, and then Gatorade is pretty much the only thing that Menlo, they've got a very, very small budget. It's a small NAI school. Uh, so the only thing that they can truthfully afford to bring in is Gatorade. So we typically only use the powders with all of our athletes. If they want to bring something else in, I typically just ask to look at it uh, ahead of time to make sure that it's a legitimate product and it's okay, that it's still going to supply all the electrolytes that they need and that sort of thing. But it's typically just Mio's or whatever you can grab at it, Safeway that they happen to like better than a Gatorade. And oftentimes, um, especially with the, the women's weight classes, they seem to be more concerned with with taking in you know, sugar excess calories beforehand. So they're the ones who are more likely to go with electrolyte sticks and powders and those sorts of things that are, are lower in sugar. So since we're on the subject, um, you know, I've, I've talked to other dietitians about this before. Have you ever uh, been in a situation where an athlete, maybe not at Menlo, but just anywhere has brought in something unusual in terms of a supplement or something that they were taking? Um, and you, you really had to kind of talk them out of why it may not be beneficial for them? <laughs> I think that probably happens fairly frequently. Um, and again, since we're on the topic, I think it probably happens more with uh, some of the weight class sports, unfortunately, because they're trying to do everything they can to, to get stronger and, and more powerful and stay at the exact same weight, not gain weight, and those sorts of things. Uh, I, I tend to get supplements pretty frequently. I, I try to make myself as open as possible to them when it comes to addressing supplements and talking about supplements. I make sure that they know that they can come to me with questions about them because I, I don't want someone to take a supplement that potentially has something illegal and, and you know, obviously they fail a drug test and they're, they're done. Um, so I, I get questions all the time on different various supplements. It's usually just uh, different variations from GNC, usually fat, fat loss supplements, um, energy boosting supplements. I think are probably the biggest ones that I usually have to talk people down from. Um, uh, I'd say that's probably the, the biggest ones. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about your time with the San Jose earthquakes. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So how long have you been with them? And um, then let's kind of maybe compare and contrast a little bit between um, what you do with the earthquakes and, and what you kind of do with the women's wrestling team. Cause those are two very different um, sports. Um, so definitely Absolutely. some different, some different energy pathways being used, um, you know, some different needs there, I'm sure in terms of nutrition and training. So let's kind of talk about that. Yeah, for sure. So I've been with the earthquake since, uh, roughly the start of their season. Mine's a, a contract position. So I'm with them through the end of the season. And yes, you're absolutely right. The way that we address nutrition with them is very much different in several ways. Um, one of them being that the budget at the earthquakes is a lot bigger than the budget at Menlo College when it comes to nutrition and the things that we're able to provide to the athletes. Uh, the other thing, as you mentioned, too, is is what they're doing when it comes to exercise. They're doing a lot more running. Um, they are oxidizing a lot more fat. They're still using a lot of carbs, too. But overall, they're using a lot more calories um, because they're on the field running for you know 90 minutes straight in some cases. So 
it is definitely very, very different at the earthquakes. Um, we're able to provide them with food that they can come in and get uh, before practice if they'd like to. They train in the mornings, uh, typically train in the mornings at least. And then after they finish with their training sessions every day, we always have some sort of catered food for them, uh, which is specific to their needs. So we've always got some sort of, of healthy protein, vegetables, um, healthy carb options as soon as they hop off the field uh, that are typically a little bit lower in fat just because a lot of the guys – uh, don't like eating a lot of heavy foods uh, as soon as they come off the, the field. And we're able to do blood work with them as well. Um, we're able to do DEXA body fat scans with them on a regular basis also, uh, which is, again, very, very different from Menlo College. We we have a very, very small nutrition budget. Uh, it's usually working with coaches one-on-one and figuring out what foods they have in their budget to provide whenever possible, which is typically around you know team travel to uh, just different various events. And um, we obviously can't provide blood work to them. They can send them to the doctor. That's about it. Uh, as far as body fat levels go, we typically do skin calipers or things. That's all that we have. So, yeah, very, very different. So you send that um, – sometimes you send them out to their physicians for blood work? Yeah, typically only if we see something that uh, we feel is necessary for them to go off to get blood work done. Uh, the most common case that I typically see is usually someone who probably has a low blood iron. Um, and it, it just from talking, asking them about uh, different symptomology, uh, asking if they've given blood before, if they've ever been turned away, if they've ever been diagnosed with low blood iron or anything like that before. Uh, those are typically the most common that I've seen. Um, I don't know that I've really ever recommended that someone go get blood work done outside of that. Uh, most of them seem to be you know, pretty healthy college-age athletes. So in a clinical setting, a lot of times uh, there are uh, nutrition-focused physical exams completed on patients. And some of the things that can be identified during these physical exams are micronutrient deficiencies. So when you're working with an athlete, any type of athlete, is that something that you also look for is just signs of potentially any deficiencies? I know you said, um, you know, there's the possibility to do blood work if you suspect something like iron deficiencies. Um, I would say just visually, but not necessarily like a, a nutrition focused physical exam. I, I don't get too, too in depth with them, uh, especially because I don't get a lot of time with them either. Mm-hmm. But usually whenever they come in to meet with me, um, first question I'm going to ask is what made you want to come in and meet with me? And that's usually where I can kind of figure out what's going on with them. If they know, if they mention, um, uh, feeling tired and sluggish all the time, uh, I, I notice that my hair is kind of falling out or those sorts of things, then I can ask a little bit more and probe some more. Uh, but I don't typically do more of like a, a physical exam, but I was, you know, just asking general questions like that. And then once you find a, a yes answer, you start asking more and more questions to figure out what's exactly going on. Is this just a fluke? Um, they changed their shampoo or something and it just, you know, they're having some sort of allergic reaction to it and nothing we can do about it. Um, or are there other issues going on? I think probably more commonly outside of a potentially low blood iron is probably more so IBS. A lot of athletes, um, that have it, don't know that they have it, they've never been diagnosed with it, they just have a lot of symptoms and just thought that's kind of the way things went. What are some of the more interesting pieces of your day when you do get to work with the San Jose Earthquakes? Uh, So I I don't travel with either of the teams, but with either of the, uh, either Menlo College or the San Jose Earthquakes. I do travel some with Menlo College, but it's not often, uh, just because again, it's too difficult. There's only one of me and there's over 300 athletes there. Uh, with the with the earthquakes, I'd say probably the, just the most interesting thing is is interacting with athletes on a regular basis, just because we've got athletes who are 
I think as young as 15 years old on the team, and then some are in their mid-30s. So it's a very, very wide range of athletes and how you work with them and handle nutrition with them and talk with them on a, a regular basis. Uh, I think they keep it interesting as well, just in general, because they've always got something going on. Uh, but they're fun to be around. Wow, I didn't realize there was such a huge range of age uh, with those athletes. Yeah, we've got a couple of guys that are 15, I want to say 16 and 17 also. I think we have a 19-year-old as well. Wow. Pretty young. So, so let me ask you this. So your oldest, you said your youngest one is 15? Yeah. And your oldest is? The oldest, I think, I'd have to go back and look. I want to say 37. Wow. So that's, that, that's <laughs> a really big range. That's, I mean, we're talking like over 20 years. Yeah. So 36 years old. It's, uh, it's Chris Wondolowski. He goes by Wando for short. Okay. Wow. That's awesome. That is a, a very, very big difference. One, one of them has to get picked up from practice on a regular basis and is, is you know, doing school on, online. And, and uh, the other one, I mean, he's old enough to take care of himself. So, <laughs> Yeah, big difference. So since there's such a big age difference, maybe let's get into that a little bit. Um, kind of compare and contrast maybe some of the different nutrition coaching techniques or methods that you've used with uh, your younger athletes versus some of your older athletes, right? Because some of your younger athletes, they're still developing. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, with the, the San Jose Earthquakes, I don't write or develop any of their plans, so I don't sit down with them one-on-one -on -one specifically. They have a nutrition consultant that comes in uh, and does that. She's been in the, the MLS for over 10 years now. Uh, but with the with Menlo College, even um, you know, and just working in, in previous jobs, working with younger athletes is very very different because again, it's it's spending a lot more time on trying to figure out how we can fit in nutrition based on their schedule, especially with how busy they are going through athletics and then going to classes and those sorts of things. Uh, whereas with an adult, it's a little bit more so. They they typically always have food security, at least the ones that I've worked with. Um, so it's a little bit different how you approach a situation, even how you coach them as well. I think with uh, a lot of the younger athletes, it's more so education. Um, and then I think with uh, older athletes, they've typically been around the block and they've heard a few things. They've probably read up on a lot of things as well. And it's more so uh, trying to weave through the misinformation and figuring out what's going to work best for them. So with all my guests, what I really like to do is I kind of like to get into a current topic um, something that you may be hearing a lot about in the media or um, on social media or just something that's been in the news recently. Uh -huh. So I want to kind of talk with you a little bit about what your thoughts are on the use of CBD oil and athletes. Um, you know, is that something that you're currently seeing, um, you know, within the athlete population? You know, I, with the athletes that I've worked with, I surprisingly haven't had anybody come and talk to me about that, especially being here in California as well, where uh, weed is legal. I, I'm surprised that no one has even come to me about it yet. So I think from the CBD standpoint, I think it's still, I don't know that there's enough evidence out there to show that it's really going to work for an athlete. There's a lot of evidence to show that it'll work with um, anxiety and there's a, a lot of evidence to show that it works with uh, seizures and depression, anxiety, and those sorts of things. But as far as performance for an athlete, there's not enough research out there to show that it's really going to help, especially with inflammation levels, which I think is where uh, anecdotally a lot of people are saying that it's helping, at least from what I've seen online. Um, there's different oils and things that you can use. Uh, <laughs> but again, I don't know that any of those 
are actually beneficial to the athlete and you run the risk of still testing positive on a drug test as well, especially if it's something that you're taking. Um, these CBD supplements that are out there right now, it's still a very, very gray area because mm -hmm. federally it's still illegal, um, but a lot of the companies are still producing it and there's not a lot of tight regulation on what's in those bottles as well as far as THC content goes. Mm -hmm. uh, there's always going to be some sort of trace of that, but how much is in there, again, just varies because there's, there's not a lot of control on the uh, production lines for those. I think there's probably still more risks than there are benefits for any sort of athlete that's going to be trying to take those in terms of testing positive. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to just put some context around this. So um, CBD um, oil itself is, is not necessarily legal, but it is unlawful to put CBD um, in a dietary supplement or to market it as a dietary supplement. Um, and it's also unlawful for anybody to claim that it treats any type of disorder. Um, from chronic disease to anxiety to depression, because um, that can be just like you said, you know, there's just not enough evidence out there for um, for the use of this. So so definitely want to be careful of that. And and it is not regulated. Um, so now I will say that um, it is interesting that the World Anti-Doping Agency and the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency have taken CBD oil off the prohibited list. Um, but just like you said, um, there's also the chance that you're going to run into exposure to some THC, even though CBD oil is considered non-prohibited, right? Because it's very difficult to get pure CBD oil. Yeah, I think it would be too, especially with the FDA not regulating supplements, kind of as you mentioned there. Uh, you really don't know how they're producing the supplement. Again, there's not a lot of control in it. They could have very high amounts of THC. They may not. Um, and if you're just looking for the CBD specifically itself for the benefits of that, you'd be better off going through uh, a doctor and getting it medically. And, and again, even just for your own sake, even though it's legal through WADA and that sort of thing, I would still suggest that having a, a doctor's written prescription is going to be more powerful and beneficial in case something ever happens. Because, uh, you know, again, it was prescribed. It's, a, it's now a known medication at that point. Uh, which is very, very different than you just taking a supplement that you bought online that we have no idea what's actually in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I will say, though, another interesting thing that I found out um, while kind of doing some research for our talk today was that the WADA has actually increased the threshold for THC to 150 yeah. nanograms versus the 15 um, that it used to be, um, which is, I think, is really interesting. Yeah, that's, that's very, very interesting. Um, you know, I, with all of the athletes, at least that I work with personally at Menlo College, we still have uh, completely different governing bodies. So I think it's good that WADA has increased it. But unfortunately for us, even for collegiate athletes, whether they're of legal age or not, uh, it'd still be difficult to try and get that past drug test. So I think mm -hmm. all in all, it'd still be, again, kind of going back to there's just more risks than there are benefits to it when it comes to uh, the CBD. Yeah, so let's get away from, you know, professional collegiate sports for a minute. Um, you know, if we're talking about like somebody who's a recreational exerciser um, or maybe somebody who's um, competitively um, participating in some type of recreational sport um, and they don't want to necessarily lose NSAIDs or any type of uh, narcotics or prescribed medication for recovery, inflammation, that kind of thing, um, you know, what would be kind of your advice for someone like that? Uh, you know, as far as like the CBD type of thing goes, again, I don't know if there's enough 
evidence out there to show that it's truthfully going to help with inflammation levels. I think there's other routes that you can go through fish oils and curcumin and those sorts of things um, that would naturally help out with inflammation uh, far more and have a lot more evidence behind them than uh, CBD oil does, at least right now. I think from we, we kind of get in this this tendency where we find this new supplement or we find this new ingredient or whatever that we think is just going to be the next uh, cure-all for everything and it gets researched for everything. And that's what people see in the headlines. They see that it's being researched for inflammation. They see it's being researched for cancer or all these other things. And they link it in their brain as this is something that's going to help with that one. Uh, in reality, we're just researching it. And still to this date, we haven't gotten a lot of research to show that it's beneficial. Yeah, I will say that, you know, just in my area. So I'm I'm down in Texas. I know you're out in California, but even in Texas, I'm seeing a lot of freestanding CBD shops, um, a lot of... Really? Yeah. Um, so they're, they specifically are these little outlet stores, um, that are popping up just all across, uh, this area. And they specifically have the name CBD in their storefront, in their storefront name. And, uh, you know, and I think it's really dangerous ground because I think when that starts happening, people assume that it's a legit thing. And not saying that it's not, because I, you know, I'm sure that there are benefits to CBD oil for certain populations in certain sure. instances, um, you know, uh, for yeah, certain absolutely. ailments, you know, in the right setting. But I think it can be very misleading. And my concern is, is that this is just super trendy and it's absolutely it's not really going to do anybody, the greater population as much good as they say yeah. it's going to do them. I feel like we saw the same thing with uh, with vitamin D at one point in time. And then there, you, there's just different random ingredients that seem to pop up every once in a while. And some take hold better than others for whatever reason. But I think they all end up getting studied for practically everything under the sun, which is good. I mean, we need that research because there's no way to say it, it definitively does or doesn't work unless you do that. Uh, but again, I think just everybody sees that research and you immediately link it as something that's going to be helpful to that, even though the research may not have found anything you know, mm -hmm. significant or worthwhile. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that correlation isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily mean causation. Um, so even though, you know, we don't take into account somebody's entire lifestyle always when we study nutrition, I feel like. Um, you know, we don't take into and I say this all the time, we don't take into account everything else that's going on. Uh, with that individual or with that sample that we're studying, you know, it's not like we can study yeah. one thing for one person. And I don't think that um, anybody would necessarily argue that different individuals are going to have different responses to individual interventions. Sure. Yeah. And I think that that's part of the reason I, I try to get in front of the athletes and make myself open to them in terms of them coming to me with any sort of nutrition questions, even with the supplement side of things. Um, so that a now we can I can make sure that they're taking supplements that are safe and that they're not going to get test positive for uh, But it also gives me a chance to talk with them about why they're wanting to take that supplement And then I can deep dive a little bit further Is your nutrition actually where it needs to be uh, before you start taking the supplement because if not then you know We're just throwing water onto a fire. It's not really gonna do much for you. Yeah, absolutely And I think you make an important part there is really understanding uh, Why the athletes doing what they're doing, you know, if an athletes coming to you with um, questions about something they are doing or that they have a strong feeling about or something that they're looking at doing. I think when you immediately shut them down or are unwilling to kind of listen to their ideas, I think that really creates a barrier. Um, right. So I, so I definitely love that you asked the why question. 
Yeah, I think that's that's very crucial because again, that can immediately lead into a, a whole host of other things. I mean, if they're coming to me for an energy supplement, why are you wanting to take this? Well, I'm feeling tired all the time. Well, now you've got a deep dive into further questions. You know, what is your diet looking like right now? Are you eating enough? Um, is this a legitimate problem? Like, do you have some other thyroid issues going on? It, it gives you a, a really solid chance to talk with them a little bit further about it to figure out you know, what's going to be right for them. Absolutely. So maybe let's, before we close out, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, what's next for you? What are your plans? Are you working in any private practice at all in addition to what you've got going on in the sports world? Uh, you know, I've kind of done some private practice off and on. I haven't done it regularly enough as much as I probably need to. But um, no, I'm not doing any private practice at the moment with both the earthquakes and Menlo College. I've, I've got a pretty full schedule. Um, I don't know that I really have a lot of time to allow for that. I think next steps for me would be uh, hopefully at some point to move into professional sports. Um, that would be the, the next step, ideally. NFL or something like that, or even NBA, even doing strength coaching and, and still doing the dietetic side of things would be awesome. Uh, but that'd be the, the ideal next step for me. Awesome. So if people are looking for you, Josh, where can they find you? How can they get in touch with you? Uh, so I do still keep a website up. It's jnutrition.com and it's spelled J-N-E-W-T-R-I-T-I-O-N. So it's nutrition only with my last name, N-E-W. Uh, I also have an Instagram account as well. It's j.nutrition spelled the same, N-E-W-T-R-I-T-I-O-N. Awesome. And then I have one last question for you. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So what one piece of advice would you give yourself as a new sports dietitian? As a new sports dietitian, ooh, that is a great question. I would say um, just to be uh, a little bit more confident and comfortable with uh, what you know going into it because it is, it's a very new setting, but a lot of the things that uh, I've learned in the past were, were definitely applicable to what I wanted to do in the sports sector. So just getting used to that and comfortable with it, I think, took some time, but um, having that frame of mind and that frame of thought in the beginning probably would have made it a little bit easier to get the ball rolling on, on a lot of stuff, especially with uh, working with head coaches specifically. Yeah, great advice. Well, Josh, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Uh, maybe you'll yeah, come back you. and, and visit with us again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. All right, guys, that was Josh New dropping some knowledge on us. So if you would like to ask Josh a question or get in touch with him, make sure that you click on the link in the show notes and leave a voice message. You can also email me, susan at performancerd.org. Check our Instagram out at performancerdpodcast and drop a DM if you have questions. If you are a performance dietitian and you would like to be featured on the podcast, you can also reach me there. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show and we'll see you next time. Bye.